Okay, a couple new faces. If I can just have five minutes, just bring them up to speed. Because this is, we're not doing Come Follow Me. This is not a sequential go through the New Testament and learn the stories of Come Follow Me. I'll leave you to study Come Follow Me. The, the idea behind this course is actually born out of the lectures on faith. When the saints were in Kirtland, Ohio, Joseph prepares a curriculum for the School of the Prophets. That curriculum we call Lectures on Faith. In Lectures on Faith, Joseph Smith says the following. In Lecture 3, he makes this declaration. Three things are necessary in order that any rational and intelligent being may exercise faith in God unto life and salvation. You can have faith, but never have faith that leads to salvation without these three things. The first is the idea that he actually exists. You have to have a connection to him. You have to know and have evidence that a divine being exists. That's number one. I've heard him. I've connected with him. I know he's real. I felt him. I know he exists. That's number one. This then becomes one of the major obstacles. My observation, 30 years of teaching, this becomes one of the major obstacles to faith. You must have a correct idea of his character, perfections, and attributes. You have to have a correct understanding. So one of the biggest obstacles of faith is we misunderstand some aspect of his character. I have watched it. I've watched people leave the church often because they misunderstand a, a part of his character. And so gaining that correct understanding is essential to my faith. And the last one, just so you know, is the idea that the life I'm living is pursued to his will. That has to do with sacrifice. That's lecture six. We'll save that one for another day. But what, the, what Joseph then does is the rest of the lecture three, his character. Lecture four, his attributes. And lecture five, his perfections. So what we're doing is we're trying to combine come follow me to specifically identify correct character, attributes, and perfection. Do you see what this class is? It's not come follow me. It's a focus on correctly understanding his character, his attributes, and his perfections. Now, very briefly, Joseph gives six characteristics, six, a list of six about the character. So here is the character of God. Number one, he is the greatest of all. No one else is going to come replace him. He's greater than my problems. He's greater than death. He's greatest of them all. We talked about that one in our first class. Number two, his character is that he is of a forgiving disposition. One of my absolute most favorite statements from the lectures on faith, and we'll just read it. Uh, I'll scroll so I can get as big. Speaking of his merciful character, unless he was merciful and gracious, slow to anger, long-suffering, and full of goodness, such is the weakness of human nature and so great the frailties and imperfections of men that unless they believed that these excellencies existed in the divine character, the faith necessary to salvation could not exist. For doubt would take the place of faith, and those who know their weakness and liability to sin would be in constant doubt of salvation. I know way too many, I love way too many people who are in constant doubt of salvation because they don't correctly understand his naturally forgiving disposition. He is slow to anger and long-suffering and of a forgiving disposition. He does forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. An idea of these facts does away doubt and makes faith exceedingly strong. If I do not see God as merciful, 
of a forgiving disposition, it's going to affect my faith. And it does affect many people's faith, doesn't it? So many people who know their liability to sin and their disposition to sin are in constant doubt of salvation because they do not see him as a forgiving being. The next three are, let me just go back to this list. It's easier to see them here. Number three is that he does not change. Number four is that he does not lie. Number five, he does not have favorites. He does not like one person over another. He does not have favorites. But he can spell. Oh my goodness. And number six, love. Everything he does is motivated by the purest form of love. Now, lecture four are his attributes. And Joseph gives the following as his attributes. Now, the thing I want to talk about is his attributes. For example, the first two. His first attribute is knowledge. His second attribute is power. His perfection is the balance of knowledge and power. And that's what we're going to do tonight. Misunderstanding that perfection of having power to save me from pain, but knowing when not to, is a hard thing for us to grasp and affects people's faith. So notice that these are balances, knowledge and power, justice and mercy. And so his perfection is in how he balances them. But let's get this list. So the first attribute is knowledge. The second is power. Third is justice. The fourth, now fifth, is mercy. I think there's the balance between those. But the fourth is judgment. He knows exactly how to balance justice and mercy, power and knowledge. And then number six is truth. Now, long introduction, love the lectures on faith. But what we're trying to do, and allow me to play the 30-year teacher card. I have watched how misunderstandings about his character affect faith. And so there's no, we could spend eons in this list. But I'm just going to hit the highlights. So we talked last time about our natural disposition to not think he loves me. He's, he's merciful, but not to me. And that's what we call hope. That's a lack of hope. So we talked about that understanding his character is having hope. Today, I want to talk about a dilemma that we, we struggle True or false, he has power to make all my problems go away. He has power to heal every pain. When I struggle with health issues, he has power to solve them. When I struggle with financial issues, he has power to solve them. He has power to make all my pain go away. So why doesn't he? Why does he sometimes heal and sometimes he doesn't? When I look around, sometimes I see people who have the blessing I thought I was going to get and didn't get. Why did they get it? And I didn't get it. That is the source of so many people struggling with their faith. So that's what I want to address tonight is the balance between what he knows and his power to solve the problem. Let me start with what he knows. The Book of Mormon, which restores plain and precious truths to the Bible, has an absolutely phenomenal addition to understanding what Christ knows. So let me, it's going to take me about 40 minutes to talk about what he knows, and then we'll finish why 
then why doesn't he exercise his power to save me from pain? Why did this person's mom die when she was a child and that person's didn't? Why didn't he heal that that I prayed so desperately he would? Why doesn't he exercise his power to save me when I know he can? Allow me to come. Now I'm going to race this because I want to come from two different directions. I want to present this visually as well as doctrinally. But I'm not much of an artist, so forgive my lack of artistry. I want to come from both sides of the board. I want to show you what your Savior knows. And I think sometimes we don't acknowledge all that He knows. So turn with me in the Book of Mormon. Now I know this, we're kind of building this on New Testament, but the Book of Mormon restores lost, plain, and precious truths. And so I believe this was probably in the New Testament, lost, restored in the Book of Mormon. So we're going to go to the restoration. Alma chapter 7. Alma has given up the judgment seat. He's going around from city to city. He starts in Zarahemla, and then he's going to go to Gideon. Gideon must have been a very righteous city because his sermon in Gideon is off the charts incredible. I want to focus on verse 11. Alma chapter 7, verse 11. Now, what we won't take time for is I would love to walk you through all of the verses of the Book of Mormon that add one very significant word to the word atonement. Every time, oh. I think, I think that did it. Okay, I don't need that. Is that gone? Better? Okay, I wish we could take time to walk through every time the Book of Mormon adds a single word to the concept of His atonement that completely changes everything. The Book of Mormon refers to His word, His atoning sacrifice as infinite. Infinite. Which meant His pain was infinite. His victory was infinite. Everything about his sacrifice is infinite. Now, I don't understand that in the slightest because if it's infinite, then is it still going on right now? Yeah, it never ends. I don't understand that. But I testify his atonement was infinite. So Jesus is going to take each one of these to an infinite level. Now, I'm going to focus on two different dimensions of infinity. Breadth and depth. His atonement was infinitely, infinite in breadth and infinite in depth. So let's take that first word. Jesus somehow in the arithmetic of his atonement has to take every single human pain, every pain, now, if we talk about infinite breadth, what does that mean? Let me take one small little aspect, breaking my arm. How many possible ways did Jesus experience a broken arm? Every single possible way. Every single infinite possible break of an arm he experienced. And how long did he experience each break? Five minutes? Two months? How long did he have his arm broken in that particular way? An eternity. Infinite breath, infinite death. He suffered pains of every kind. Now that's just one aspect. How about every other aspect? Does he understand birth, giving birth? Every single human pain. How many ways, in essence, has he experienced giving birth? Does he know what a C-section is like? An ectopic pregnancy? 
Breach? Stillborn? Abortion? Rape? PMS? Lack of being able to get pregnant, but wanting so desperately to do so? How many pains? And how long did he experience each one of those? How long was Jesus in labor? An eternity. With every single one of them. Every human pain he came to know. Now let's focus on the next word. Name something that afflicts someone you love. Name an affliction. Name something that afflicts someone you love. Death of a loved one. How many times has he lost a loved one? How long did that suffering of that loss last? Okay? Depression. How many varieties of depression did Jesus experience? And how far did he take it? How depressed has the Savior been? Infinite depression. Addiction. Has he been addicted? To how many substances has he been addicted? Every single one of them. How long did he go through that withdrawal? An eternity. Anxiety? Does he know every single human anxiety? To what degree? Do you get the idea? Do you see what he's coming to know with every human pain, every human affliction? What's our next word? Temptation. How many variety of temptations has he experienced? And how deep? Every one of them. Does he know why I gave in at that point? He says, oh yeah, I know exactly why you gave in at that point. I know that. Every human temptation to an infinite level. Next word. Sickness. How many diseases has he suffered? Lou Gehrig's disease? Down syndrome? How many diseases does Jesus know? And how long did he have each one? Every one of them to an infinite degree. Do you see what he knows? Mental illnesses? Does he know schizophrenia? Bipolar disorder? Every one of them. To what degree? To an infinite degree. I, this one's fascinating, verse 12. He will take upon himself, I don't wanna lose that phrase. He will take upon himself death. Can we add this phrase to that concept? Will he take upon himself death of every kind? Has he drowned? Did he die of cancer? Did he die in childbirth? Has he died of COVID? Has he died of loneliness and a broken heart? Has he been burned at the stake? Murdered? No one leaves this world in any way that he doesn't know to an infinite degree. How long did the agony of each death last? An eternity. Luckily, the longest you can suffocate is four, four minutes. Probably less. How long did he suffocate? An eternity. 
Do you see why we sing, I stand all amazed? Now, I don't know what an infirmity is as compared to these others, but do you get the idea? Tell me what the Savior knows. Summarize this. Jaden, would you do your best? Summarize what the Savior knows. When we talk about his knowledge, what does he know? Everything we will ever, everything everyone will go through. The totality of mortal existence. He knows the human condition. He knows the human condition. Cheko Okazaki, who served in the um, General Relief Society president back in the 90s, said this. Jesus experienced the totality of mortal existence in Gethsemane. That phrase is astounding. Jesus experienced the totality of mortal existence in Gethsemane. It is our faith that he experienced everything, absolutely everything. Sometimes we don't think through the implication of that belief. We talk in great generalities about the sins of all humankind, about the suffering of the human family. Could he have suddenly turned on the suffering of everyone? We don't suffer cumulatively. We suffer. We don't experience pain in generalities. We experience it individually. That means Jesus knows what it felt like when your mother died of cancer, how it was for your mother and how it still is for you. He knows what it felt like to lose the student body election. He knows the moment when the brakes locked and the car skidded. He experienced the slave ship sailing from Ghana towards Virginia. There's not one single slave who ever came to this country who ever experienced anything he hasn't been through. He's been whipped and beaten and abused in every possible way. He experienced the gas chambers of Dukai. He was put to death in Auschwitz. He experienced napalm in Vietnam. He knows about drug addiction and alcoholism. There is nothing you have experienced as a woman. She's speaking to women, so if you're a male, you can apply it in your own way. There is nothing you have experienced as a woman that he doesn't also know and recognize. On a profound level, he understands about pregnancy and giving birth. He knows about PMS and cramps and menopause. He understands about rape and infertility and abortion. He has been abused in every possible way. He understands, or he understands your mother pain when your five-year-old leaves for kindergarten, when a bully picks on your fifth grader, when your daughter calls to say that the new baby has Down syndrome. He knows your mother rage when a trusted babysitter sexually abuses your two-year-old, when someone gives your 13-year-old drugs, when someone seduces your 17-year-old. He knows the pain you live with when you come home to a quiet apartment where the only children who ever come are visitors. When you hear that your former husband and his new wife were sealed in the temple last week. When your 50th wedding anniversary rolls around and your husband has been dead for two years. He knows all that. He's been lower than all that. He's been there. He's been lower than all that. <coughs> that is half the equation I want to talk about tonight. Your Redeemer knows the totality of the human experience, every aspect. Now we're gonna move from this board and, move, and we're gonna meet in the middle because here is Jesus. Coming from this direction is every pain, every affliction, every sorrow, every heartbreak, every experience of mortality. He experienced it to an infinite level. Now, let me convince you, he knows you. He knows you down to the cellular level. He could sequence your DNA from memory. He has every hair of your head numbered. 
So let's start really big. Let's look, look at Jesus's connection to the big and watch it not diminish as we go small. Because Moses was overwhelmed when he saw the number of human beings in this universe. Remember how he was just blown away by that? And God responds by saying, let's turn there. Moses chapter one. Let's start very big. Let's start with the worlds. The worlds that God has created. Turn with me to Moses chapter one. Here's my dilemma. I want to read it together, but I need this board. You guys see if I tilt up that? Is that okay? Okay. Um, Moses chapter one. Let's read this together. Uh, which one's the pearl of great price? Moses one. Okay, so Moses is taken on a little journey of the cosmos. Um, starting in verse 27. Came to pass as the voice was still speaking, Moses cast his eyes and beheld the earth, yea, even all of it. And there was not a particle of it which he did not behold. Now, not only the particles of the earth, but look at verse 28. He beheld also the inhabitants thereof, which meant he saw you. He saw your grandchildren. He saw everything, everyone, every part of this earth. And there was not a soul which he beheld not. Now, he's a little overwhelmed, right? They were numberless. God speaks and he says in verse 29, beheld, he beheld many lands and each land was called on earth. He asks God, why are these things so? Now, the Lord comes and says, worlds without number have I created. And I created them by the power. And I'm only going to tell you about this world. But notice what he says. Innumerable are they unto man. Too big, too vast for man to be connected. But all things are numbered unto me. They are mine and I know them. The Savior numbers claims and knows every single world. Every single world. He numbers, claims, and knows. You don't, but he does. Now that's pretty big, right? Let's go smaller. Let's watch him go smaller and see if his connection diminishes with the size of the object. So what would be smaller than a world? Turn to the title page of the Book of Mormon. This one. The Book of Mormon, account written by the Hand of Mormon. Very title page of the Written by Moroni. This was on the last leaf of the gold plate. Plates. The second paragraph declares why the Book of Mormon was written. Number one, what was the first reason he gives for writing the Book of Mormon? I want to show you that the Lord has done great things. What's the assumption? If he did great things for our, fa our fathers, then what's the assumption? He'll do great things for us. So know the great things he's done in the past. And then you need to know... The covenants. You need to know what you need to do to draw closer to God. So let's write a book that has the covenants. And then this one. And we love this one. We love to quote that the Book of Mormon was written for the convincing of Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God. The problem is we usually put a period there. We stop there. My whole life, I've heard, I've heard people quote that, and they always stop right there. That the Book of Mormon was written to convince them that Jesus is God. The Book of Mormon was written for that and to tell you what he does. 
The testimony of the Book of Mormon is that Jesus will what? Manifest himself unto all nations. Not only does he number, claim, and know every world, but he will manifest himself to every nation. Tell me a nation mentioned in the Book of Mormon. Nephites? Does he manifest himself to the Nephites? Lamanites? Jaredites? Mulekites? Gentiles? Jews? The Book of Mormon stands as a testimony that Jesus will not forget any nation. He numbers, claims, and knows every world. He manifests himself to every nation. It doesn't diminish as we got smaller. So what's smaller than a nation? You and I would say a state. What would they say in the scriptures? Kindred, tongue, or people. Turn to Alma 26. Now, that should ring a bell, right? What's Alma 26? Alma 26 is Ammon rejoicing over what the Lord did to a portion of the Lamanite nation. Not the whole nation, but a, portion, a people, right? Go to the very last verse of Alma 26. And Ammon is going to testify that our Savior, what? Is mindful of every people. When we go smaller, his attention does not decrease. He numbers, claims, and knows every world. He manifests himself to every nation and is mindful of every people. Name a people in the Book of Mormon. Anti-Nephi-Lehi's? Was he mindful of the Anti-Nephi-Lehi's? How about where Alma the elder goes over to the waters of Mormon? Was he mindful of that group? Was he mindful of Limhi and Zenith? Every people. And we start repeating some of these numbers, right? Some of these words. Not only is he mindful of every people, whatsoever land they may be in, he numbereth his people. And his bowels of mercy are over all the earth. He starts reusing these words even as he gets smaller and smaller. He is mindful of every people. He is mindful of your people. He is mindful of everything your family is struggling with. He is mindful of every people. All right, let's go smaller. We're getting smaller and smaller. What would be smaller than a people? Me. Let's go to every creature. Turn with me to Al or Mosiah 27. And again, what's the setting here? Mosiah 27. Tell me the setting. It's very significant that we find this verse in Mosiah 27 because Mosiah 27 is the story of a very wicked young man who God should have crushed like a bug who was fighting against him. And yet, what does that young man stand up and testify? Mosiah 27 verse 30. Alma will stand up and say, I rejected my Redeemer and denied that which was been spoken of by our, by our fathers. But now that they may, for, may foresee that he will come and that he what? This might very well be the whole theme of the Book of Mormon, that the Messiah does what? He remembers every creature of his creating. Bugs, mosquitoes, insects, every child, every person. Does he remember you? And I love that we interchange these words, right? Not only does he remember you, but what word comes up again? He will manifest himself unto each one of you. He remembers 
every creature. He knows you. He knows you as well as he knows the worlds. He has numbered every hair on your head. He could sequence your DNA backwards and forwards with his eyes closed. Oh, Josh, he's C-G-A-C-C-D. No, he just spells out Josh's DNA. He knows you. He numbers. He is mindful. Now let's do one more. Let's go smaller. Smaller than a person. What often gets lost when there's lots of people? A little person. A child. Watch Jesus with each and every child. Turn to 3 Nephi 17. 3 Nephi 17. Jesus with each and every child. Seventeen, he takes the children, and I love the phrase here. What does he do with each child? When he said these things, he wept, and the multitude bare record, and he took their little children one by one. And what did he do to each child? He blessed each child. Did he give them all the same blessing? You know he didn't, right? So I want you to ponder that concept. Jesus has a blessing for you. He has a plan for you. He blesses and prays for each of you individually. He asks God for a specific blessing. For you. He blesses and prays for. Now, let's put them together. What could a powerful, omnipotent God do who knows the human condition and knows you? You see how he can put those together? He knows what you need. He knows what you need. Which of all the human experiences do you need? He knows how to save you. If we really want to talk about what he knows, he knows the entire human experience and which of those human experiences you need to go through in order to be saved. Let me pitch a radical doctrine and I'm going to testify of it up front. With all my soul, I testify that it's true. Your life is your best chance at salvation. Your life, everything that has happened in your life is the best possible way for you to be saved. Let me see if I can convince you of that doctrinally. Turn with me to Jacob chapter 5. Now, I don't think I need these boards, so let me use the screen. Jacob chapter 5 is a restoration of Zenos' allegory from the Old Testament. Clearly one of the greatest prophets that ever lived. He's been completely taken out of our current Old Testament. And he's quoted frequently in the, in the Book of Mormon. He was phenomenal. In Jacob chapter 5, we have a restoration of his allegory of the tame and the wild olive tree. Now look at verse 5. Here's the brilliance of Scripture. I will liken thee, O house of Israel, to a tame and a wild olive tree. Thee in one sense, is all of us. This allegory is the story of Israel from beginning to end. You will read in this allegory about the apostasy, about the Nephites going to America, about Jesus coming, about the restoration, about the millennium. 
this allegory covers all of us. But at the same time, what else does thee mean? I will liken each one of you to a tree. You are like a tree. If you don't trim trees, what do they do? They go wild. And you are like a tree. Now, jump down to verse 41. I didn't mark this one. He asks a question that's really not a question. He says, when the, when it starts to go, when the, when the tree starts to decay, he says, what could I have done more for my vineyard? What could I, what else could I have done to save the tree? And then he answers the question. And you tell me what his answer is. What else could he have done to save the tree? What, what could I have done more? Have I slackened mine hand that I've not nourished it? Nay, I've nourished it. And I digged it. And I pruned it. And I dunged it. And I've stretched my hand out almost the day long. And I'm not going to lose it. So he asked the question again in verse 49. What could I have done more for my vineyard? What's the answer to that question? Nothing. Which means if someone else's life had been better for you, he would have given it to you. Which says, what about my life? What does that say about the depression I struggle with and the addictions I've had? What is he suggesting? I know exactly which human experience you need. And your life is his greatest gift to you. Because if someone else's life were better for you, you'd have that life. You see what he's teaching? Now, it's not always good news for the tree, is it? What do you do to trees that are going to decay? Well, let's go back to the beginning. Again, this is his knowledge and his power. See what we're trying to balance? So let's go back to the very beginning. Notice in verse 3, it starts to decay. So then he does round one. Round one is very soft. He prunes, he digs, and he nourishes. And it helps, but it's not enough. End of verse 6. The top is going to perish. He's going to lose the tree if he doesn't do something else. So verse 7, tell me what he does. What does he do with his power? He plucks. Tell me what's the act of plucking. You take something in my life that I love and I cherish and you do what? You yank it out. Someone I loved. And you yank them out. An opportunity I wanted. And you yank it out. That's what our omnipotent God does. He plucks. He takes he knows exactly which human plucking I need. And he plucks. Okay, verse 9. What does he do in verse 9? He grafts in. What's the act of grafting in? You take something I never thought I'd have to deal with. And you shove it into my life. Cancer. Divorce. Childlessness. 
depression. This is what more omnipotent God does with his power. He plucks and grafts. He yanks and stuffs. One more. Verse 11. What does he do? He moves. He places. How many of you thought you were just going along nicely and this is my path and I'm loving this and he just yanks you out and says, grow here. Utah is where I got placed, not where I wanted to raise my family. It is in the nethermost part of the world. And I was going so beautifully and he just said, go to Utah. And I got here and I said, this is the right place. Drive on. <laughs> and he said, no, I'm placing you here. And I know many of you were headed down a path you thought you were just going to love. And he just rips you out of that place. And why would he do this? Why would he do that with his omnipotent power? Well, notice verse 15. It came to pass that a long time passed. Let's go back and see the tree that got plucked and grafted. And guess what? Guess what? It's growing and it's bringing forth fruit. And it was good. And he says something in verse 18. And it is my testimony that it is true in every single one of your lives. He says, <coughs> if we had not plucked and grafted and placed. If I hadn't taken one of those painful human experiences and put it in your life. the tree would have perished. I would have lost the tree and I'm not losing this tree. That is his character. He knows you. He knows exactly which human experience you need to have. What diseases, what bodily challenges, what experiences he knows every human condition and he knows you and he knows how to put those two together. And the balance of his power and his knowledge is that he knows exactly which ones you don't need and which ones you do. And someday he will say, you will hear him say, if we had not grafted and plucked, and placed, we would have lost the tree. So let's go see the tree in the nethermost part of the vineyard. Let's go to Utah and see how the Dunfords are doing in that barren desert called Utah. Let's go to the nethermost place. And Dad Gummit, what's happening? What's happening? It's growing. It's bringing forth much fruit and it's really good. Now, this is where the servant begins to question like we do, right? Why, Lord, that's not what I needed. That was not the experience that would have been for my good. And we question the Lord. The servant questions him in verse 21. He asks, why? Why that challenge? Why that life? Why, Lord? And Jesus answers five words. 
I'm going to narrow it to the first five words. When you question why he gave you that human experience, what will he say? What will he say to anyone who questions him? Counsel me not. I knew. I knew. That is the balance between his power to save you from pain. He knows which experiences you don't need. Do you remember that parable in the New Testament? Which father among you, if his son asked for bread, would give him a stone? What's he saying? I don't give stones. I don't give you useless experiences. I don't let you hurt for any reason other than what is in your best interest. I don't give you stones. Every pain, every affliction, every sickness, every infirmity is because he knew what I needed to be saved. And your life is not what I needed. And my life is not what you needed. Your life, he knew you well enough. He knew the human experience well enough. He will not give you a stone. He knows what you don't need. And he knows what you do. His perfection is in finding that balance. Of him I testify. Of every single one of your lives, I testify it is that person's best chance at having the greatest happiness he could give them. That's the Messiah. That's his character. That's who we worship. Of him I bear testimony. He knows. And because he knows, he knows when to use his power and when not to. Every pain will end. And when it does, it is my testimony that you will look back and say, He knew. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.